so much. Well, once again, let me begin as I always do, and I don't do this in a perfunctory way, you know, because I should do it or whatever. I really, really, really mean this. Thank you, thank you, thank you for putting the study of the Word of God as a primary activity of us as we gather together on Sunday morning for worship and for coming into the presence of God and to ministering before him and receiving from him. So I want to say again, thank you for that. Um, Hopefully, as we are ministered to by the Holy Spirit during this time and as we are and will be during the time of uh, the worship service at 10, we'll be encouraging others, as I said, encourage others. Come to the School of the Word. Come on Sunday morning. Come to Covenant Group. You know, we are the ambassadors. Someone prayed that way this morning. I can't remember who it is. We're the ambassadors. We are the the voice of the Holy Spirit in the world, to other believers even, to encourage them to be participating in the things of God. The opportunities that God has given us to receive a greater experience and knowledge of himself and of his love for us. Amen? And then I suppose I would ask this. Given that, given what God has done, given who God is to us and what he desires for us, our good. Remember Leviticus 10, um, I think it was a Phil Widener quoted that at our elders meeting the other morning. Leviticus 10, all of this the Lord wants. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 10, it is for your good. It is for your good. I'm still learning the Bible, brother, so thank you a lot. So it is for our good. Given all of that, the question remains, and it remains especially for the men who are being called to the men's retreat in a week or two, why not come? What in life is so important that it keeps us from this special, unique opportunity that the God of glory, our Heavenly Father, gives to us to receive from him? Amen? Why not? Father, as we begin this morning, we give you praise. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, we cannot get over the glory, the majesty, the wonder, the profundity of this word. So, Father, we ask this morning by your spirit that you minister. Father, there's not an elder in this church. There's not a pastor in this church. There's not a man or woman in this church who has innate natural ability to communicate your word in a way that causes transformational miracles in us. Father, all of that is by the Spirit. We can speak and we can give knowledge of the basics. But Father, you, by your Spirit, takes that word and causes us to hear it and then causes our hearts to receive, to meditate upon, to ponder, so that it becomes part of us as the Holy Spirit continues to conform us into the image of your Son by the application and the administration of your Word in us. So that, Father, outwardly we are manifesting more and more what it means to be the image bearers of our great God. Those who display to the world, Father, those who display to the world that 
in the one being of God, there is a Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And displaying it this way, that we are loving one another as you have loved us in Christ. Father, thank you for the enormity and the power, the miracle, the grace, the mercy that you have poured out upon us. In Jesus' name, we give you praise. Amen. Well, you remember last lesson, we talked about Jesus coming to the Jordan in obedience to the Father's will. Now, remember, all that Jesus does upon the earth is not unilateral. All that he does, may I repeat that word, all that he does, all that he thinks, all that he says is in absolute direct obedience to the Father's will. Jesus lives according to one leadership. The Father's will has made manifest in him by the Spirit in accordance to the Scriptures. That's how he lives. And as we see him live this way, this is our call as believers in Christ to be making no decision to be saying no word, to be going to no place, to be participating in no activity except by the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus lives. Well, do you mean that God is involved and that interested in every little detail of our life? How many of us as parents and grandparents are that interested in every little detail of our children's lives? I am. I am. And God is much more so. And so Jesus comes to the wilderness under the call to fulfill the mandates that God has given or had given to Adam to fulfill. And so Jesus comes to the wilderness for this. And he is anointed at the Jordan, remember, in verse 16. And Jesus goes into the waters of the Jordan and he comes up out of the waters. And so the thing that we talked about last week, he was first anointed, or when I say first, the first one that we discussed, he's anointed as God's royal agent, God's royal son. He's anointed as the king of God's kingdom, the one who is now given authority to establish the kingdom of God upon the earth. That kingdom, which was in God's intention in Genesis 1 and 2, now we see after Genesis 3, 6, when Adam sinned and he ate, now finally, after all the years, after all the years and the promises and the prophecies, after all the sacrifices, after all the activity, all of these years through the ages, finally, finally, God's second Adam or last Adam is upon the earth to establish God's intention, to bring about what God wants in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And there's so much in that that we've never discussed. But it's an enormous statement. And it's enormous because it says enormous things about God and about his self-givingness that he would create us, knowing what would be costing him that he would create us in order to have that fellowship and that intimacy with us. So the first thing we see is Jesus is, if you would, anointed as God's royal son with authority. 
And this is Matthew's purpose, remember, in the beginning, to show that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, according to the Scriptures, to fulfill God's purpose. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about the priest, because we said Jesus is anointed as God's royal priest. We did that last week. So we talked about the royalness. Now we talked about the priesthood. This morning, we will see that Jesus also came to be anointed as God's high priest in fulfillment of the Old Testament type. So, again, he's first anointed as the royal agent with royal authority. Now that he has been given royal authority, now he may take up the mandate of being God's priest, the type of the high priest in the Old Testament. So let's look at a couple of the, uh, some of the Old Testament type to better understand and appreciate what was being affirmed in Jesus' anointing. And let's look at the Old Testament type to see what was in Jesus' heart and mind as he approached the Jordan, as he entered into the water, and as he went under the water, into the water, under it, and came out again. He has in his mind very clearly, very specifically, specifically and accurately what he is doing. This is not just another baptism. This great man knows specifically what it will cost him in embracing the Father's will as emblematic of his anointing in the baptism at Jordan. Now, we remember that Yahweh, remember Yahweh is Lord in the Old Testament. Every time you see capital L and then lowercase cap L-R-D in your Old Testament, about 63 or so hundred times in there, that's the word for Yahweh. That's the personal name of God, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. So I sometimes will say Lord, I will sometimes say Yahweh. Some people pronounce it Yehovah, Jehovah, it's fine, but I would just say Yahweh. And so let's remember that Yahweh called Moses, remember, to deliver Israel from Pharaoh's rule through the blood of the Passover lamb. Remember, we went through all that. Now, why does God call his children, I'm, I'm sorry, Israel out of Egypt? Why does he do that? Remember what he calls Israel when he's talking to Moses and he says, tell Pharaoh what? To let my son go. My son, go. Now, obviously, this is not something of a physical, you know, begetting. It is a relational term talking about this nation of people. God has gathered together and has called before the foundation of the world, knowing every single one of them personally and intimately before the foundation of the world, before he ever creates them. He knows each one of them and all of their steps before he creates us. And he calls Israel my son. Why? Because it is declarative of the intimate fellowship and relationship that God calls his people into, which is indicative of the fellowship and relationship and intimacy that God the Father has with God the Son. And you remember there is another man other than Jesus who is called the Son of God. Who is that? Remember in chapter 3 of Luke, he traces the ancestry of Jesus all the way back to Adam, the son of God. And so you have here again Israel as a picture now of Adam upon the earth as God now calls another to represent him and to be his image-bearing nation upon the earth. So that through Israel's obedience to the law that God gives to them at Sinai, 
Israel then may walk in the mandates of God, declaring the glory of God and establishing upon the earth the kingdom of God through their obedient walk with God. And so he calls him son for that reason. So in order to accomplish this purpose, this purpose that God has called Israel to, the Lord gave Israel the gracious gift of his law so that through their obedience they would be serving his purpose. Remember in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, as he introduces Israel to himself, having brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, finally they're at the base of Mount Horeb, and God then comes out from from the top of the mountain and come descends upon the mountain and in lightning and thundering and, and all the flashes and so on he speaks to the people directly and so he explains his his purpose to them he said if you will indeed obey my voice and if you keep my covenant you shall be to me my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation now, you may remember that as a quote from somewhere else in the Bible. Remember in First Peter, Peter quotes from that. And so God calls this nation to himself, and he says, you're my son. And as my son, you are to be reflective of the father, like son, like father, or like father, like son. And so as my son, I'm giving you my law. I am revealing to you who I am and how you, are, how you are to walk in my ways in order for you to fulfill and be my image-bearing people. And so we must remember that the law is not given to put them down and make them fail and all that negative stuff. But the law is God's absolute gracious gift of love to his people. Otherwise, how could they ever hope to live as a nation and experience the good presence of God and be blessed by him. They could never do this outside of having been given the law of God. And for us believers this morning, we must see the law of God in a way that hopefully elevates it for us. Now, what happens? What happens if they fail? You see, because when God gives the law in Exodus chapter 20, what does he already know? He knows what he knew in chapter one, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, when God created Adam what and Eve, what did he know? He knew they would what? Fail. Now, how do we know that? What Bible verse proves that he knew ahead of time? Because some people would teach he didn't know and he was caught off guard. And, you know, he had to do some things to rectify this. Ephesians 1, 4. Remember Ephesians 1, 4. Before the foundation of the world, God had all of this already in his mind and according to his intention. And by decree, he sets it in motion. He just doesn't say, look, I'm creating someone. Let's see how they do. Hopefully they can do the best. And if they don't, we'll move some things around and, and try to get it better. And, and some kind of way toward the end of the whole thing, I think it might work out to my benefit and to their benefit. No, he makes decree. God is absolutely, comprehensively, forever sovereign in the heavens. Amen. Over all the affairs of all men, all women, even over the affairs of our will. Whew. Now, what happened if they fail? What happens? Knowing they would fail, God graciously makes, what word do I want? Provision 
for their failure. Now, we must see this as believers because knowing we would fail after we were saved, there are still believers who feel guilty and become afraid of what God's going to do. And will they be punished and will they suffer horrible consequences? So knowing Israel would fail, God made provision. What was the provision? The provision was the tabernacle, the Levitical legislation, as mediated by the priests. That was God's provision to maintain his people through their failure as his people of his, the people of his image. And in this process, in this legislation, in these rituals and ceremonies, hopefully with the purpose of as the people move forward in God, learning the law and obeying the law and walking and participating in the rituals and the ceremonies of the tabernacle and the Levitical system, the sacrificial system as mediated by the priest, they would be growing and being matured more and more as God's image-bearing nation upon the earth, thus much more accurately and consistently and compellingly being reflective of the God whom they serve. And so, this was given, this ritual, this ceremony, the tabernacle, Levitical legislation, and as mediated by the priest, Sabbath by Sabbath, was given in order to make them fit to come into the presence of a holy God for fellowship. And so because of their sin, they had to be kept out of the very presence and face of God. But through this legislation, as mediated, and I want to make sure you hear me say it over and over again, as mediated by the priesthood, especially and specifically by the high priest on one day of the year in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, mediated by the priesthood, God was making his people continually fit to come into his presence via the priesthood and be represented in the priest as God's people, as they would experience fellowship Sabbath by Sabbath and during these seven Levitical festivals of celebrating the goodness and the presence and the love and the mercy, protection and the provision of God, uh, um, Yahweh their God. Only in this way could they be made holy as God himself is holy. And so through the Levitical system of sacrifices mediated by the priest, could the tabernacle become the tent of meeting? You remember the tabernacle was constructed. The Lord said, make me a tabernacle. Why? In order that I may dwell in it. Before this, God dwells in the heavens, and he's stationed, if you would, on Mount Sinai. Remember, that's where God is. But God wants to come down and be in, I'm sorry, among his people among his people to fellowship among them and be with them and to lead them from among them, not from afar. He wants to come close to us. His purpose is always to have the most intimate fellowship and relationship with us. And so the tabernacle is constructed to be the dwelling of God. But you remember in Leviticus and Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, after the tabernacle is completed, what happens? It says not even Moses could go into the tabernacle. Why? Well, isn't the tabernacle the place where God and man will meet together? It is the dwelling of God. Well, something else had to happen. 
in order for this dwelling, this tabernacle, to become the place of God's presence, it had to be made, if the people are going to enjoy the presence of God, it had to be made into the tent of meeting. You see, in Christ, we have the presence of God. But in order for him not only to be the presence of God in man, you remember John 1, 8, uh, 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. But God is not satisfied just to dwell among his people. He wants his people to come into him and fellowship with him. You may have heard that before. And so Jesus becomes, if you would, not only the tabernacling or the dwelling place of God's presence for his people, but he also becomes and is forever the tent of meeting, the one in whom and with whom we now meet face to face with God. And so how do the people, how can Moses and the people be made fit to come into the presence of God? You know, we've already gone through a lot of this. I only repeat it because that's where we are in Matthew. How can they be made fit? Well, it would be through the sacrificial system as mediated by the priests, especially, as I said, by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, that Israel's sin would be purged and they would be purified or washed clean of the defilement of their sin in order to come into the holy, play, holy presence of God, in order to be made fit for God's holiness. So in this way, the high priest became what? The Adamic figure. You know what I mean by Adamic figure? Adam. In this way, the high priest was administering if you would, the people's ability to experience God and to walk with God and to fellowship with God and to worship God. And so it was the duty and responsibility of the priesthood and those men of the tribe of Levi to make sure that the tabernacle was kept safe and secure from being defiled by that which was in the world of sin and of the flesh. And in that, especially the high priest functioned as Adam was called to function, you remember, in Genesis 2.15. You remember what God told him in Genesis 2.15? What does he say about the garden? Work and keep the garden. You remember that? That was Adam's mandate as far as his relationship with God's place, maintaining God's place and the worship. Now, what does it mean, work and keep? Well, again, I've said this several times in here. You go to Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and you will see the same two words, work and keep, that you see in Genesis 2.15, now being used in Numbers 3, 7 and 8, to explain to the Levi's, what their task is in relation to the tabernacle, to guard and to maintain, to guard the tabernacle from any defilement from coming in, and to maintain through the worship, um, through the sacrificial system, the worship of God. And so this is what Adam was supposed to do, remember? He was supposed to guard the garden. Guard the garden from what? Anything in the field. Remember, the garden was here, and everything outside was a, <clears throat> a picture of that which had not yet come under the active rule of Adam as God's agent. He was to guard against that. So remember, we've talked about this. How does Satan get into the garden in chapter 3? Everybody wants to know, how did he get in? Who, who, how did he get in? Was he already in there? Well, of course he was not. 
He was not already in there. He was outside. He has never been in there. He fell. A fallen, corrupt being is not allowed into the garden of God. And Adam was given the mandate and the authority to keep Satan and his minions out of the garden. Well, how does Satan get into the garden in chapter 3? Somebody had to let him in. And there was only one person who had the authority to keep him out. So I conclude at least, and I think others would agree, that Adam did not exercise his mandate. And that was the first flaw, and it was a fatal flaw. Because once we curry favor with the enemy, once we begin to, once we begin to be tempted and we take a moment to consider the sin, to think about the thought, to contemplate it. Are you with me on this? You know how you're tempted? And then there's a choice to be made. What? Do I begin to kind of look at it a little bit? And once that happens, Satan begins to work. I'm going to use this word, his magic. Remember, magic is of the enemy. Magic is of the enemy. Even if your children are being entertained by it and think it's fun, it's Satan's tool to draw people away through deception. Oh, I know the church doesn't want to hear it and doesn't agree with it. Just read your Bible and don't be deceived. Magic, even in fun cartoons and fun places, is Satan's deceptive tool to lure us into his trap. Do we see that? We may not like it. We may not agree with it. Read your Bible and see if it says anything to the contrary of just what I've said. The Lord always condemns this as an activity of opposition to him. And so, Adam, Aaron became Israel's first high priest and was chosen. And how does, Aaron, how does Aaron become the high priest? Well, listen to this. In Exodus 40, verses 12 and 13, the Lord is speaking to Moses, and he says to Moses, bring Aaron and his sons... Remember, he had two sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and washed them with water. Did you hear it? Where are we right now? We're at the Jordan, and Jesus is going to be what? Baptized. He's going to enter the water. He says, wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments and anoint him and consecrate him so that he may serve me as priest. So in being baptized, Jesus is fulfilling these two pictures. He is going in and showing that he is being washed, even though he doesn't need to be washed. There is no defilement of sin in Christ. He does not sin. And he goes into the water to show, I'm being washed as a fulfillment of the type of the high priest. And when he comes up out of the water, having been washed, wash him first and then do what? Anoint him. What happens as he comes out of the water? And John says, what? I saw the, a dove descending from heaven upon him and resting upon him. And that dove was the Holy Spirit. And in that work, God the Father was sending the Holy Spirit to anoint the Son as his high priest upon the earth who would mediate between God and God's people so that they may become his people of Im his image-bearing people to be with him forever, face-to-face -face fellowship forever. And this is what's happening there. 
This is an enormous thing. Jesus knows all this before even going to the Jordan. In this way, the high, um, let me, I've lost, here I am. What was happening when these sacrifice, with these, sorry. <laughs> what was happening when these sacrifices were happening? What was happening? I didn't make that clear, did I? What was Aaron's duty in these sacrifices? What was he accomplishing? He was undoing Genesis 3.24. Remember Genesis 3.24? What does Genesis 3.24 say in a loose translation? After the sin, after the promise to send the Messiah in 3.15, after showing him what the Messiah would do, 321, what? The shedding of blood? Remember Genesis? Then what does he do? The Lord puts him out of the garden and puts the cherubim at the gate, at the entrance to the garden, to guard the garden. Remember that? So no one else can come in. So nothing else can come in. Not even Satan himself can come against the cherubim. You see, God can keep out of the garden whom he wants, but he is using a man to do his great work of redemption. And so in Aaron's duty as high priest administering the sacrifices, he is reversing what happened in Genesis 3.24. Adam and Eve and mankind, if you would, God's people were put away from his presence because of their sin. And through the sacrifices or the Levitical system in the tabernacle mediated by the high priest, God was reversing that curse, that expulsion, by bringing them back into his presence via the mediation vicariously in the high priest. Do we see what's happening here? He was reversing what he did in Genesis. And he was reversing it in type, not in fullness yet, because it was all a type of him who would come, who would be God's seed of the woman, who would be the lamb who would be slain from the foundation of the world, and who would be the one who would mediate forever the purposes of God and forever establish God's people in his presence in face-to-face fellowship. And here we have that man being baptized at the Jordan. And so the entryway, the gate the door into God's presence. What happens when I say the door? What does John ten seven say? Jesus said what? I am the gate. I am the door. I am the door back into the Garden of Eden, if you would. I am the door back into the presence of God. I am the door into the tabernacle. I am the entrance. I am the only way into the presence of God face to face with the Father. And so the entryway into God's garden presence had been barred by the cherubim. But now, through the mediation of the high priest, it would be once again open through the Levitical legislation. How many of you know this psalm? You've heard of this psalm, Psalm 24. I'm just going to quote verses 3 to 5. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who? He who has clean hands, you see the washing, the purging, and a pure heart, no defilement there, who has not lifted up his soul into vanity nor sworn deceitfully, 
who he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You see what David is saying in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And when the Bible of the Old Testament talks about the hill or the mountain of God, that is a statement or a figure of the, where God's presence is. Remember, where is the tabernacle? In Jerusalem. Where is Jerusalem? On Mount Zion. It's on Mount Zion. You remember, Eden was a, a raised-up area. It was a mountain. Now, when we think of mountain, we're thinking of Mount Kilimanjaro, you know, and, and all of that. No. In Israel, the mountains are not nearly like that. They're very large, if you would, hills if you live in Colorado. That's not a mountain. That's a hill. Well, these are lifted-up places. And so where was Eden? It was in an elevated area. How do we know that? Because the water flowed down from Eden. It was an elevated area. And so this is a picture of being restored to God's original purpose. Back to Genesis. And so who, who are these people? Those who enter the gate of God's garden through the Levitical legislation by the high priest are vicariously entering into Eden once again with God's presence. To be fully manifested in the coming of the high priest who will bring God's people back into his presence forever. So, remember how he does this. There are two goats. We won't go into depth into the legislation in Leviticus 16. But the high priest on the Day of Atonement, skipping over all the rituals here, takes the two goats. And one goat, he, he cuts the throat. And he spills the blood. And with the blood of that goat or that lamb, he takes into the presence of God, into the holy of holies. And he returns from the presence of God. And returning then the second goat, he leans upon the second goat and places both his hands on them. And he presses onto the goat with his hands, confessing the sin of the people. And once that's done, then the sin of the people carried in this goat. This goat is sent into the wilderness, walked into the wilderness, never to return again. That is a picture of what happens when God, then the blood is accepted by God for the forgiveness of sin, then sin, if you would, is sent away. So we see what? The propitiation of God from man to God upward. God's wrath is averted, is set aside for those who have claimed the blood as their own washing and stand before God. So that in those who are being saved by the blood of the Lamb, the wrath of God has been transferred to another, to another goat or a lamb. And as a consequence of that, then our relation, our sin is what? Expiated. It is what? Sent away forever. So what does Hebrews say? Hebrews says this, for I will, um, Jeremiah rather, 31, 34, for I will forgive their sin and wickedness and remember their sins and no more. Remember, as far as the east is from the west, it's sent away. Those are the two goats. The first goat in Israel's sin is atoned for, and they, because of that, are conveyed into the presence of God. By the blood carried by the high priest, the people are conveyed into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, vicariously represented by the priest. In the second goat, Israel's sin is sent away from the face of God, where? Into death. You see, the wilderness, death, never to come up again. God now sees our sin 
rather the guilt and the punishment of our sin, having been crucified at the cross, having been buried at the cross, never to be resurrected again, correct? Now, he still sees our sin, and he still remembers what we do. People say, well, God doesn't remember. Well, fully, of course he does. Certainly he does. But now when he looks at us, he sees our sin, but he sees them through Jesus' blood glasses, if you would. He sees them in relation to the atoning sacrifices. And he said, when I see the blood, what happens in chapter 12 of Exodus? I will pass over. I will forgive. And at the end of the ceremony, Aaron appears and he gives this great blessing. Remember that great blessing in Numbers 6, 24 and 26. I want you to listen to this because next week this blessing, we'll talk about the benefits of this blessing next week. Aaron appears and he comes forth to bless the people. You see, the whole purpose of the tabernacle, of the law, of the Levitical legislation of the high priest. The entire purpose here is that God may bless his people with his own personal presence. So when we say in this church, vital signs, are you reading your word? Are you meditating on it? Are you allowing it to become inculcated in you? Are you praying? Are you maintaining a viable fellowship and relationship and communication with God? Are you regularly attending the services of the presence of God as God gives it to a Sabbath or, sorry, Sunday by Sunday? Are we giving properly to the Lord as he has said to give? And so much more, loving one another and caring for one another and taking opportunities all over the place that God has one purpose in, one purpose, to bless us with his face-to-face presence, to bestow on us that which we must have, which is what? The viable, intimate, real feeling emotional, experience, love of this God for us. You see, he wants one thing. He wants to bless us. There's not an ounce of retaliation or anger or resentment in God for his people. Not an ounce. Never will be. Not an ounce. Never will be. Everything he does, everything he commands, is for one purpose. What is it? Our good, having been blessed and being blessed by him. And the essence of that blessedness is his face-to-face fellowship with us. You can't get better than that. Listen to this great blessing. He comes out and he raises his hand before the Lord and before the people. And he says, may the Lord Bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see, this is the blessing of God. This is the role that Jesus has taken upon himself as the eternal son having been incarnate with a human body and soul. For what purpose? 
the son's amazing, obedient love for his father's will and purpose to pay at the highest price the father's will and desire to have a people who will experience his face-to-face fellowship and intimacy forever. Next time we hear, you hear, you think that there's negativism in do this and do that and don't do the other. Go here and don't go there. Where have you been and how are you doing? What's happening in your life? And, you know, all of that. Hopefully it's being motivated when we do it as human beings correctly. But it is from God's purpose one thing. And what is that? I want to bless you. I want to bless you. I want to bless you. So where do we see the revelation of the fullness of that blessing come to pass? In Revelation 22, verse 4, what does it say? All the company of God are before, um, the company of the people of God are before his presence. What does it say in verse 4? And they shall see his face. That blessing in Numbers 6, 23, 24, and 25 is finally and fully and forever consummated in Revelation 22, 4. Next week, we'll see the anointing of Jesus as it has to do with how this blessing of the face and presence and intimacy of God, the presence, the face, remember presence and face, the same word group, how all of that comes about in the ministry of this one who was anointed as the royal high priest. As next week, we'll talk about him being anointed to be the anointer, being anointed to be the anointer with the Holy Spirit. You got it? We'll talk about that next week.